chapter 3 kind of deals with. You'll turn with me there, Romans chapter number 3, and I uh, hope you have an outline to follow along with us as we finish up this chapter and kind of set the stage for the beginning of chapter 4. If you have or you need an outline, I should say that, Brother Jeremy's coming down the middle aisle. We'd love for you to go ahead and, and get one and follow along with us and here in Romans chapter number 3, and uh, kind of a, uh, almost the antithesis type of message than last week. Last week was a little bit more doctrinal, technical, some bigger terms and, and packed full. Tonight's pretty simple, just some basic truths as Paul's challenging you and I. And uh, that idea of praising my Savior all the day long is a reality of this passage in the sense that we've come to understand that it's all of Christ and none of us. And uh, it ought not to ever lose its impact on you and I that we don't have to earn our way to heaven. There's nothing that you have to do today or tomorrow to gain heaven. You are a citizen of heaven based upon what Jesus Christ did. And really the passage here before us, uh, these last few verses of chapter 3, in fact three of the verses or a couple verses we've already looked at in part, they're coupled together now with these last three verses of chapter 3 to present some things to us that Paul wants to emphasize. If you will, join me in Romans chapter 3. Look at verse 27. We've seen this verse to some degree. We'll kind of expound on it a little bit more this evening. He says, where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works. Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude, and we saw this conclusion last week, that a man is justified by faith. And then we'll focus this evening on the latter part, without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? And one of these key statements, I alluded to it last week, God forbid, yea, we establish the law. You see, in these few verses, verses 27 through 31, Paul deals with something that was probably one of the great assets of the Jewish nation, of the Israelites. But it became, though it was one of the great assets, one of the things that was of great benefit to them, one of the blessings of the nation, it became a stumbling block for them. You know it well, and so do I. What became a stumbling block for the nation of Israel? Well, the law. The law. The very law given to them by the hand of God written with His finger on those tablets. And then as they expounded and, uh, upon it and added to it and so forth, it became very tedious. And then it became a means by which they looked at for justification, which we looked at last week. And so a very thing that ought to have been a blessing for them as a nation became a stumbling block. And so Paul uses these last few verses to answer the Jew who still, in his mind, can't wrap his mind around, can't get his thoughts around what he had just heard from Paul in the justification of a believer by faith. In verse 27, we see a, a, a point of emphasis. The first thing that Paul emphasizes excuse me, is this, the elimination of boasting. The elimination of boasting. Again, we hit on this just a little bit. What is it that eliminates the boasting? Well, if we look at the verses that we've already studied prior to this, that we discussed last week, we find that Jesus Christ is that lovely term. He is our Redeemer. 
He redeemed us. We found out that he is our propitiation. We define that term. And through him being our, uh, the ransom paid and given for us, the outcome of our faith in him provided for our justification. Uh, his work on the cross, our faith in that. And so the finished work of Christ on the cross did it all. Faith was then applied to my account. So that's why Paul says, okay, so if that's the case, if you are justified through the propitiation of Jesus Christ, who is your Redeemer, and you have done nothing to earn it, then where is the boasting? Can you boast of the law? No way. You didn't. In other words, and I think this is a, 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 an apropos um, example. Okay, let's say this. Let's let me pick on a few guys. Let's say uh, Sean Kennedy was out in a lake and, and uh, he was swimming and uh, he started to drown. Okay, I mean he was sinking quicker than a stone and rock, you know, and he's he's flailing around and boy he's just going like crazy and and that might be fun to take a picture or video. Anyway, Sean's just going crazy. He can't. Boy, he's struggling all over the place. Okay, and and let's say that uh, Scott Garrison was on the shore and Scott saw him and it's like oh no somebody better do something sean's struggling he's about to drown he's about to go under he can't help himself and i mean he's flailing like crazy scott jumps in and and uh, he does the doggy paddle out there and uh, he gets to sean and and he wraps his arm around sean and he pulls him back to shore and and they just kind of collapse on the shore and sean stands up he goes did you guys see that did you see me trust scott to get me back here man i sure am something aren't i I mean, I, I trusted him to get me back to shore. And boy, I, man, I'm pretty, I, I, I'm, I'm pretty awesome, aren't I? We look at that and say, you're crazy. Who, who deserves all the credit? Scott does. And so, my friend, can I tell you this? When you and I were sinking deep in sin, Jesus Christ saved us. It would be like a drowning person coming to shore and then saying, well, look at me. Look, I had great faith in the lifeguard. I had great faith in, in Scott to save me. And boy, boy, aren't I something? Listen, yes, we're saved by faith, but my friend, our faith does nothing. It's the object of the faith that does everything. It's Jesus Christ. And so faith, as we've kind of described, it unlocks that. It puts and applies the justifying work of Jesus Christ to our account. It's a great truth. And that's why Paul here speaks of the fact that you and I cannot boast. Why is that so difficult for us? Why does the majority of the world, around the world, in all the different religions and cults, why, can, why do they stumble at such, at such truth? Well, you and I know it well. It's nothing new, and we see it and speak of it often. The thought that you and I can do nothing to earn salvation, we cannot boast in anything about gaining heaven, is an affront to our pride. And it is our pride that is damaged when we have to admit, wow, I, I am hopeless, and I am helpless, and I need a Savior. I need someone to do what for me what I cannot do for me. See, why is that such an affront to our pride? Because boasting, what is boasting? Boasting is an expression of our pride. Look at me, I did this. Look at me, I can do this better than you. It's boasting is an expression of our pride. In fact, it is very much a stroking of our pride. So here, what Paul says is, listen, you can't boast. Again, an affront to our pride. 
There's a reason that during the Middle Ages, that the seven deadly sins, the top one was pride. Because pride is something we all face and we all have internally. And in fact, reading one author about it, I think it was C.S. Lewis, in fact, he was speaking of the vice of, uh, of pride being the most difficult to detect in ourselves, but easy to detect in others. <laughs> and how true that is, isn't it? How many times we look at somebody and say, man, they're so prideful. <laughs> and, our, and our wife or our husband looking at us and says, who do you think you are? <laughs> you should listen to you. And how that is true. Because we all have it. We all think better of ourselves than we probably should. If we're honest. And we can spot it a mile away in another person. Our pride yearns for something in us to boast of. To take pride in. Be careful too. You and I can live for God and we can do uh, obedience. Uh, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we can strive to keep God's commandments. But can I tell you, you and I can turn keeping God's commandments into a pride issue. Hey, look at me. Look what I do. Look how I serve God. Aren't I something? And then immediately we've allowed our good to be evil spoken of in a sense. We turned it into something that it it was never intended to be. Yes, we're supposed to obey God's commandments. Yes, we're supposed to serve Him and live for Him. But my friend, that ought not to feed our ego. It ought not to boost up our pride. We ought to just simply say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I do what I do by His grace. And so here, Paul is making it very clear when we deny our pride-spurred ambitions to credit ourselves in some way for our salvation, then we must conclude. See, when we, when we deny it, when we, okay, I, I'm not going to allow my pride to get the better of me and say that I've done something to earn it. When we do that, the only thing that we can conclude is as we are justified through faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, here's what we can the only thing that we can come to. This is the only rational response we have to join Paul when he said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, but God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Paul, who wrote Romans, wrote Galatians 6 here and He makes a very astute observation. For you and I as believers, the only thing that we can glory in is Jesus Christ. And all that He is to us. And all that He's done for us. I am joint heirs with Christ because of what Christ did. I am a child of God because of what Christ did. I am a citizen of heaven because of what Christ did. I don't have anything to glory in of me. I have everything to glory in Christ of. What he has accomplished for me, what he's accomplished for you. It's interesting, isn't it? Here in Galatians chapter 6, we've studied the book. Galatians chapter 6, he's dealing it with, Paul is dealing with the Judaizers. It's interesting, the verse right before this, in verse 13, Paul is speaking to the Galatians, the the believers there at Galatia, and, and he's telling them, listen, these Judaizers are coming in, they want you to follow the law, and specifically in verse number 13, they say, we want you to be circumcised. You need to be circumcised. If you're going to be a true believer, you need to be circumcised so they're adding something to faith and paul says to the to the believers there in galatia he says listen be careful because literally what they want to do quote unquote they want to glory in your flesh Isn't that amazing 
not only glory in their own flesh, but if we could convince you to earn your salvation through circumcision, carrying the law, literally, Paul saying those Judaizers, they want to glory in what you are doing in the flesh. Paul's point is simply this. The only thing we have to glory in is Jesus Christ and what he has done. Paul calls them out in that same verse. He says, you can't even keep the whole law, you Judaizers. And it comes to the conclusion, we must conclude this statement here in your outline, that the one and only true gospel of Jesus Christ is a truth that eliminates boasting of anything but Jesus Christ. You can't boast about being a good Christian afterwards. You can't boast of giving your life. I can't say, well, look, hey, I got saved and I went into full-time ministry. Brother Josh Mean, Brother Nathan, they can't sit here and say, okay, hey, hey, I'm something. I gave my life to Christ in full-time ministry. My friend, None of us can boast about anything. Thankful for long-serving missionaries. I'm thankful for long-serving pastors. I'm thankful for long-serving Sunday school teachers. I'm thankful for long-serving deacons. I'm thankful for long-serving children's class workers. I'm thankful for long-serving nursery workers. But I'll tell you, my friend, we don't have anything to boast in. Save Jesus Christ. In Him working in us and through us in the grace of God, accomplishing in us what He intends it to, as we willingly submit to the grace of God. See, Paul is emphasizing, first of all, it eliminates the idea of boasting. Number two, notice it. It's on your outline. It comes from verse 28. Just a a simple statement here. We've kind of dealt with verse 28 to a great degree, so we'll only spend a couple of moments here. But notice it, number two. There is an elimination of the deeds of the law as the means of justification. We saw the conclusion, as I mentioned last week, and we're not going to review it at all. Uh, That certainly sufficed it. But the reality is this. Uh, He is saying in that statement in verse uh, number 28, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith. And now notice that he qualifies it or explains it. He says, without the deeds of the law. So we dealt with already the subject matter of justification. Now we want to consider what this verse says about the relationship of the gospel to the law. This is important because this is one of the things that in their understanding of, okay, as a Jew, if I will keep the law, I'll be righteous before God. They have defined the relationship of the gospel and the law a different way than God would define it. In a verse we'll look at in a moment, we'll see what Paul says this relationship is. The relationship between the gospel and the law. But here in this verse, Paul tells us what it is not. Did you catch it? In verse 28, he says that relationship between the law and the gospel is not a relationship of, catch it, dependency. Dependency. It's not a relationship of dependency. It's not a, 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 a situation where the gospel is dependent upon the law. In fact, the gospel is independent of the law. Great truth. And yes, a basic in some ways, but one that must be emphasized, as Paul does many times here in this passage. There's no codependency. You don't have to have the law and the gospel. And can I tell you, my friend, listen carefully. There are many false doctrines out there that say, oh yeah, salvation is by faith, but you've got to do this. And that is a wrong relationship in view or a wrong view of the relationship of the gospel and the law. There's such uh, errant beliefs such as the lordship salvation, which lordship salvation basically says you have to repent before you get saved. In other words, change your ways. You have to turn from sin and come to Christ, and then you repent afterwards, and your life has changed. Unless that's the case, 
then you're not saved. Can I tell you what that is? It's just a fancy name for a works-based salvation. See, God regenerates us at salvation instantaneously. And as he does, that you and I are a new creature in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us and empowers us to do what? No longer live unto the old man and the old nature. To turn from sin and to live a life that is then pleasing to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the, the Word of God. It's crucial, and, and he's making a point here. So whether you add works before, you read, add works later, midst of, whatever the case may be, he's saying, no, 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 no. The relationship between the gospel and any law, including the Mosaic law, is not one of dependency, it's independent. Crucial for these Jews to hear that. They always believed and they could not wrap their minds around the thought that, uh, that there was no connection, no connectivity that makes the gospel law dependent. And so Paul throughout already in Romans, he keeps hammering it home, repeating it so that they comprehend that justification in Christ through Christ alone eliminates the deeds of the law. The gospel, your faith and salvation rest not the littlest bit on the law. It's good for us to be reminded often that justification cannot be paid for or paid back by any sinner. Catch that? The declaration that you and I are righteous before God, justification cannot be paid for or paid back by any sinner. That could only be paid for by the perfect Lamb of God who justified us. So Paul is hammering it home, continually emphasizing it. Notice in the number three, the third thing that Paul emphasizes, and, and I told you we're going quick tonight. Verse 29 is where we get it. He, he asks a couple questions. He poses a couple questions here. Notice it, notice it. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Okay, so number three here, you see it. Elimination, uh, we'll get to the elimination of the exclusivity of God. The elimination of the exclusivity of God. Elimination of the exclusivity of God. In that day, we know this well, and, and we have probably studied it at different times individually and maybe also as a church. But during that time, and honestly throughout their history, many of the Jews had a prideful thought that the God of all creation belonged only to them. Certainly their special relationship, as God has chosen them as a nation, uh, would lead to that. But the reality is that uh, as they were one of the few nations that believed in monotheism, one God, and we know the, the nations that surrounded Israel, even today, the monotheistic, many of them, but the nations that surrounded God were full of many different little G-gods and idols and, and such. And so they were very much, rightfully so, one of the only monotheistic nations. And yet, as that was their conviction... As it was their conviction, it gave way to what how one commentator, I like how he described it. He said it's a, it, it, it became for them a degenerate theocratic exclusiveness. You say, what in the world does that mean? Literally, their attitude was this. Theocratic, just referring to God and the, their observation of who God was and who he is. Exclusiveness, in other words, that God was exclusively the God of the Jews. 
exclusively. Uh, God didn't have any care for anyone other than the Jews. Uh, uh, literally, they grew to despise Gentiles. We saw it with the Samaritans. Samaritans were even worse than a Gentile. Why? Because a Samaritan was a half-breed. A half-breed. Half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And that was the worst of the worst. You mixed blood. And so, boy, they hated Samaritans, but as, and they hated Gentiles, despised them. They harbored uh, great animosity toward them. And in their hearts, maybe they wouldn't say it all the time. Uh, some of their rabbinical writings even hinted at it. They believed that God despised the Gentiles. In their heart, they harbored prejudice. And, boy, prejudice is a powerful thing, isn't it? I mean, it really is. We live in a nation that's been marred and scarred by prejudice of all kinds. I'm watching a video even today that uh, came out of Lansing, and the reality is the this, this Civil Rights uh, Commission um, that is uh, there in Lansing, boy, they are trying to take away everything as far as rights from us. Very prejudiced against you and I as church, as a church, as believers. And uh, you know, we may show you the video sometime in the future. Reality is they're, they're trying to pass different kinds of laws. They're trying to force it through the legislature, redefine uh, certain rights and everything else, literally to the extent they want to be able to come into our church and tell us who can use what bathroom. I mean, literally, they're pushing laws, and if, we, if that does not happen, they'll fine us and everything else, and some of us, the leaders of the church, will have to go to education school to, to learn what they believe is right. <laughs> uh, anyway, that'd be a fun school to attend and be the bad student. But anyway, um, uh, re-educate you. That's what they want to do. I mean, that's literally what they're saying, and so it's a big push. Honestly, that's a prejudice against Bible-believing folks. It is. It's a prejudice. We, we, we have seen it the last 10 to 15 years. First, there were the cries of, re, uh, of discrimination. And then in their haste, desire to right the wrong of perceived discrimination, what do we have? Reverse discrimination. I, it's reverse discrimination. What, what they have complained about happening to them, they now are the doers, the perpetrators of that same discrimination. So I say all that to say this. We understand the context here. We understand how it can be with the Jews and, and their attitude, their, their prejudice. I mean, listen, throughout the, the Jewish history, there were Gentiles. What about Rahab the harlot? What, what about Ruth in the very line of Christ? Uh, what about them understanding that, yeah, God still blessed the Gentiles? What about Naaman and his healing of leprosy? Why would God do that? He's a Gentile. And all of those instances and several more, the Jews would begrudgingly admit, okay, God was kind of nice to the Gentiles and a little bit merciful, but they didn't like it. They would speak quietly of Ruth and Rahab, even though they were part of Israel's history. Those things were not things they wanted to, uh, to play up. They downplayed those folks. They allowed their prejudice and their hatred to be displayed through the, towards the Gentiles. I, I think there's a there's actually a book in the Old Testament that really shows it for us. That kind of speaks to the heart of the Jews. Uh, you remember this verse? It's in, it's in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. It describes Jonah. It says this, But it displeased, uh, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. You remember why Jonah was angry? What displeased him? saved right mercy on Nineveh good in the end of chapter 3 you know what it says they repented 
They had a revival. They changed their ways. And because of that, God had mercy. And, and the terminology is that God repented, meaning he, he, he held back the judgment, what he was going to disperse on them and, and play, let play out in their midst. And we know uh, the Ninevites were hated by Jonah and others because of the, uh, the, uh, the terrible things that they had done. The terrible things they have done. Now, let me ask you this. Hypothetical. <laughs> Gotta love hypothetical questions, right? Hypothetically. What if something happened and revival broke out among the Muslims? What if from Senegal was the, the epicenter and it just spread across the whole Muslim world? Ooh, what would happen to some prejudices in America? See what Jonah said? He, he saw revival and repentance. He was angry. He, he did not want God to show mercy to the Ninevites. In fact, you know what verse 2 said? And he prayed unto the Lord. And I love this. He said, I pray thee, Lord. Was not this what I said? Didn't I tell you this was going to happen? Was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish. Why? For I knew that thou art a gracious God. I mean, he's literally whining about God being a gracious God. And merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Literally, note that Jonah was mad and angry because people had gotten saved. Why? A people he did not like. It's a rightful challenge to you and I to inspect our hearts and our mind to ensure that there are no prejudices within us. Not for uh, cultures we don't understand, whether it be Mexicans, whether it be other people of different colors, whether it be another nationality, or, or whatever the case may be. We've got to be careful that we don't allow prejudices to come up in us. We've got to guard against that. Whether it be black, white, Mexican, you name it. We've got to go. Whether it be even towards people of religions and so forth, we can disagree with them and tell them what the Bible says for sure. But I'll tell you, my friend, it'd be a great day when the Muslim world comes to put their faith and trust in Christ. We've got to, we've got to guard ourselves. We don't want to fall into the same uh, footsteps as Israel here. You know what else is likely? This is kind of interesting once you think about it. Paul grew up, obviously, in, in Judaism. He understood the Jews, and he was a Jew. And so it is highly likely that Paul himself uh, gave in to some of these prejudices, and yet he was to become what? One of the greatest missionaries to the Gentiles. <laughs> That's the kind of change that God can wrought or work in someone's heart. Likely that Paul is writing himself from an understanding of, wait, 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 wait. He's our God. Jehovah is our God. And though they might not just yell that and express it all the way, in their hearts, many of the Jews believed it. And so here are these two questions. They're really asking just one question, and it's simply this. Isn't the God of heaven the God of all people? Isn't the God of heaven the God of all people? And you can imagine those hating, prejudiced Jews would have been squirming at that one. It makes me think immediately of the, when Christ was there with the lady taken in adultery and he said, let the one who is without sin throw the first stone. 
And they quietly slip out because their hearts convicted them. And I'll tell you, my friend, as Paul asked this question, he knew they weren't about to speak up and and say such a statement about God, Jehovah, who is not willing that any should perish. They wouldn't speak up, though they may have believed it in their heart and felt greatly prejudiced against Gentiles. These Jews would have had to come and spit out the answer that, yes, God is the God of both the Jew and the Gentile. He is the God of everyone. And as such, there's no two different economies for justification. In other words, there's no two different ways to come at salvation in heaven in God's sight. There's not one for the Jew and there's not one for the Gentile. Both, verse number 30 tells us, both are justified by faith he justifies both let me give you an illustration okay we're not too far from the canadian border and let's say we went over to port huron or right across the border and uh, you and and a canadian were in the same store and you were buying the same thing and this store actually took both types of currency and you both went to pay for it and both using two different types of currencies and you both bought the same thing. You were using the American currency. They were using Canadian currency. Well, what just transpired there in that situation? Well, there's literally two different economies happening. Now, can I tell you, my friend, we, you know, we're not going to get in too deeply, but we're dispensationalists. We believe there's different periods in time. But though we believe in different dispensations, We do not believe that with every dispensation there was a different economy. In other words, there are some who call themselves hyper-dispensationalists that believe in every certain age, the time of grace and the time of law and the pre-law and so forth and so on, the different dispensations. There's some that believe that in each one of those there was a different economy. In other words, you came to God through different means. One was through works, law. One was through faith and so forth. Can I tell you, my friend, that is anti-biblical. Whether it was before Christ or whether it's after Christ, it does not matter the dispensation. All are justified by faith. It isn't like an American and a Canadian using two currencies to gain the same thing. Oh, no, my friend, there is only one currency of heaven, and it's the blood of Jesus Christ and our faith in what his work did on the cross for us. So that's what Paul's hitting at. Don't miss it. That's greatly important for you and I. In fact, the next chapter, chapter 4, we're looking back, and he's saying, aha, let's talk about some of the Old Testament heroes. Let's talk about Abraham, and let's see how they were justified. Because many of the Jews would say, well, listen, he got up and moved. He followed God. He must have been justified by his works. Oh, no, my friend, he was justified by faith. By faith. So Paul is really setting the table for us to come to that point. It's of faith that the Jew, he uses the term circumcised. It's by faith that the Gentile comes to to salvation. He uses the term uncircumcised here. God's simply saying that uh, spiritually there's just one economy, one currency for gaining salvation. Now, finally, look at verse 31. Do we then make void the law through faith. (laughs) 
So he's, again, as Paul has done in this chapter before, he's anticipating questions. In fact, what I think is neat, how our translators uh, kind of broke up the chapters. I don't necessarily think that it's always the best place, but many of them are. I think this is a great one. They start the chapter with several questions. Remember this? What advantage then hath the Jew? What profit is there in circumstances? He's anticipating questions. And uh, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? They start, he, he starts the chapter that way. Now we come to the end of the chapter, and Paul is anticipating more questions by the Jews. And one of them is this question here. Okay, fine. Paul, if you say it's by faith and the law has nothing to do with it, then you're telling me that faith, and they are responding in anger, resentment, frustration, hurt, because they've been living their whole life according to the law. Raw emotions are all coming out here. So, Paul, you're telling us that this gospel of faith is abolishing, it's doing away with the Mosaic law that our ancestors have followed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You're telling us that now the the law is rendered useless and pointless, that it's a waste? And what's Paul's response? God forbid. A thousand times no is maybe a modern good interpretation of it. No way. That's not what we're saying. And he's anticipating this. So he says, actually, it's contrary to that kind of thinking. You see, in fact, what the gospel does, it confirms the law. As he says other places, it fulfills the law. And notice the terminology in this verse. The gospel of faith establishes the law. Establishes the law. And I'm a little bit behind, so let's fill this in, okay? Establishment of the law by the gospel. By the gospel. The gospel doesn't void it. It doesn't render it useless and pointless and all those things. No, the gospel comes and confirms the law. What do we mean by that? Well, first of all, let's understand this truth. Faith, the economy of faith, does not replace the law, I get it, because salvation was never by the law in the first place. So, so faith doesn't come along and say, oh, okay, fine, it just makes the law void because now it's taken its place. No, faith does not take the place of law, my friend, because law could never justify you or me. No, faith comes along and it fulfills the law. Great point, crucial point for us to understand. The law was the means of God revealing His perfect standard. A standard that every man falls woefully short of. And it's not just in the Old Testament. It's the New Testament that tells you and I that if we offend, we break the law in one point, what are we? Guilty of? Oh. That's not Old Testament. That's New Testament. That's not a different dispensation. That covers them all. If you and I come up short, which Paul says in Romans, we've all come short of the glory of God. So the law reveals the standard. If we come up short, then we're in trouble. See, the law was the means of God revealing his perfect standard, a standard that every man falls woefully short of. The gospel, now note it, three thoughts about it. The gospel established the law because the law showed that the penalty of sin is death, and Christ's death met all the demands identified by the law. So you go back to Mosaic Law and the, the, uh, the requirements of killing the lamb and, and, and often, frequently, and often, or and also the, the yearly, as we talked about a little bit last 
excuse me, last week with the, the blood sprinkled on the, the mercy seat. Reality is, all of those aspects of the law show that, wow, what is stated even in the, uh, the reality of the New Testament and, and such reiterate is this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So it necessitates, the law is telling us, hey, wait a minute, you, you, something has to die. And we could say it goes all the way back to the point where, and I think I even alluded to it last week, where Adam and Eve, when they understood their sin, they tried to cover themselves with what? Leaves. God came along, and what did God cover them with? Skins. What has to happen? Death. Death. For that skin to be applied, death had to happen. And from that moment forward, throughout the entire Old Testament, we have picture after picture after picture after picture that the day was coming when the perfect Lamb of God had to be killed. Blood had to be shed for our sins, for that penalty. And so the reality is this. The law was teaching something all along the way. The law was pointing to something all along the way. It isn't that the law is unimportant. Oh, quite the contrary. From the moment the law was given, even the law within the Garden of Eden, but the Mosaic law and so forth, from the moment those laws were given, the reality is this. Man had to look in the mirror and say, "Uh uh-oh, I can't be perfect. I've fallen short. God's standard is here. Some of us here, some of us here, some of us here, but we all what? Fall short. So the law served that purpose. Notice it. It really flows into the next statement as we have before us. With Christ's finished work on the cross, now, once Christ has done the work, now we see that the law is empowered in its role of bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ. He, as the only perfect Lamb of God, the Redeemer every person needs. And so the law is doing its job. It's empowered to do its job. Now the law says, wow, I I can't keep this. I can't meet that kind of standard. And the law shows me that I have fallen short. And then it points me where? To the cross of Calvary. To the Redeemer. And so we might say that it's now even better than ever fulfilling its purpose. How does Paul term it later? It's a schoolmaster. It's an educator. It's a teacher. It's a tutor to do us, to do what? Bring us to Jesus Christ. Bring us to the knowledge and understanding that I can't do it myself. I need a savior. So that's the law. The law is not done away with. The law has a role and purpose in the sense that it's showing us our great fall. It's limited. Yes, there's no doubt of that. It's always been limited. Even those sacrifices under the law could never atone for the sins of mankind. They were only a looking forward to the perfect sacrifice. And so it's never been able to do that. It's been very limited. And now it can be empowered in its role to bring people to Christ. Last but not least, this is a great point that Paul makes here. But honestly, later in the book, we'll look at this verse. Finally, the law is fulfilled in our spirit, our spirit-empowered and yielded living. It is established in the life of a submitted believer. Here's a neat aspect that often gets left out about the law. We don't focus in on, we maybe don't draw his attention as we ought to. Paul presents the truth later in Romans 8. Turn with me and we'll be done. Romans chapter 8, notice what Paul writes here in this chapter. Chapter 4 through 8 really carries the next thought uh, in the book of Romans. And uh, so this chapter 8 is bringing to a close justification, the relationship between between the gospel, the gospel and works, 
and the law. And we come to Romans chapter 8. Notice these verses carefully. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3 establishes that it was Jesus Christ who took care of sin. For what the law could not do, what, what couldn't the law do? It couldn't justify us. It, it couldn't remove the stain of sin. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. I like that statement, don't you? I'm glad that I'm no longer condemned, but sin's condemned. I like that. That's a good amen time, amen? I'm not condemned anymore. You're not condemned anymore. What's condemned? Sin is. And boy, that, that ought to thrill our heart. That ought to thrill our soul. Now notice he goes on, verse, verse number four. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, what does he mean? Well, notice it. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the, what's the next word? Spirit. Here's the great reality to the Christian life. The law could not save us. We've come to the understanding that Jesus Christ alone and what he did can save us. And what does the Bible say that once we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we have now have sin defeated, the old man and the old nature is no longer in control, and the Bible says that now I can yield my members as servants of righteousness. Literally this. Before I could not keep the law, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what? I can keep the law. It's great truth. You see, before, many of us, we could have tried and tried and tried to love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, after we are saved, the reality is this. If you try in your flesh to love your neighbor as yourself, you'll fail. But as a believer that has the limitless power of the Holy Spirit in God's Word at our dispense, being able to work through us, guess what? You can love your neighbor as yourself. Something that is not humanly possible apart from new life in Christ. It is a great spiritual truth that you and I need to wrap our minds around. There is great meaning to the simple verse that we often quote, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. See, sometimes you and I say, oh, I, I, just, I, I, mean, I just try and I'm just trying. Reality is, it's not that you can, it's that you and I are going all, right, all right about the wrong way to do it. Because if we are spirit-yielded, spirit-submitted, not us trying to do it ourselves, but allowing the Holy Spirit to work through us, us yielding and submitting to Him, my friend, you and I can keep what the Bible says. Oh, will we slip up? Yes, because you and I have that old flesh that we let sit on the throne every once in a while. We give way to it. But the reality is, you know what now? The law can be fulfilled through spirit-filled living. Paul says, walk in the Spirit. Why? That you might not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I don't have to live like that anymore. Now I can do what no one could do before. Not me, but Christ who lives in me. It's a great spiritual truth. Paul is setting the table for us to come to the point. Romans 6 and following. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't have to live like my old self anymore, the old flesh, the old nature. Now I can have victory. I can do what God has asked me to do. Again, not through my strength, but through him. 
and his Holy Spirit. We'll get into chapter 4 in the coming weeks there, and he gives us a great example there, as you can maybe look ahead to that chapter, but he gives us a great example from the Old Testament, not only of Abraham, but others, and uh, just to challenge us about this justification apart from the law, and uh, boy, he expounds on it tremendously. Great truth. I hope you'll take these things to heart, and may we remember them and walk in them. All right, let's bring this prayer request up, Cliff, if you will. 